Welcome back to the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. I'm your host, Ben Pakulski. As always, I'm so grateful to be here. I'm so grateful that we can be a part of your life. Thank you, everyone who's been active in the Muscle Intelligence community. It's been amazing to hear from you and connect with you. Today's episode is a deep dive into the conversation around epigenetics. What does that mean? And how much do our genetics actually play a role into optimizing our body, mind, and life? And, and can ultimately we influence it? And the answer is absolutely yes, we can. Dr. Ben Lynch joins me today to talk about how we can impact it, what variables we should be looking at, what are the most important variables. Dr. Lynch has written a book called 30 Genes that dives into the eight most important SNPs that will ultimately allow you to thrive. And we get into each of the SNPs today that are going to create the greatest impact and then ultimately how to change them or how to optimize them, let's say. Uh, we talk about dopamine in the brain and how those are very much genetic and how you may be experiencing symptoms. We talk about MTHFR. We talk about um, other epigenetic influences on both of these pathways. And now those pathways are the ones we spent the most time on today because I think most people have heard of those and uh, maybe are misled or misguided on those things. So there's a lot of really interesting considerations, uh, specifically in the dopamine pathway. We spent a good amount of time in the beginning of the podcast getting into understanding dopamine and the implications of uh, short-term and long-term and how it's going to be implicated in learning and stress avoidance and some really interesting stuff. And at the end, we get into you know my typical conversation around parenting and maybe how you can um, take this information that you've been empowered with and apply it to ultimately being a better parent or understanding people in a, in a better way and looking at people rather than judging someone's behavior. You can sit back and objectively observe and say, hey, maybe this is why this is happening and this is how I could help. So if somebody, you see someone who's really stressed out or someone who's anxious and then understanding that from a neurochemical perspective, so from perspective of dopamine, acetylcholine, and epinephrine, maybe we can start to support rather than condemn. And it's really interesting really interesting conversation. I highly suggest you go out and get the book, Dirty Genes. Dr. Ben Lynch wrote it a few years back and has had massive success. He's also created a supplement company around it. And you guys can check that out at your discretion. Today's podcast is brought to you by Billings or otherwise known as the wild Alaskan seafood box.com. I can't give it a higher recommendation. It's fantastic. Absolutely love it. Huge fan. And as I've said before, I'm not a fan of fish, or at least I haven't been. So head over to wildlastandseafoodbox.com slash Ben, use the discount code Ben and get $20 off your first order. And you're going to get about five pounds of fish, which for some of us is uh, a lot. For others, it's not. I usually get about two boxes sent to my house every month and I go through them pretty quickly. Here's the crazy thing. All my little people like it as well. And when children like food or like healthy food, you know it's high quality. It just tastes so incredibly delicious. So my favorite way to prepare my salmon lately has been just literally a light sear in the in the uh, on the stovetop on a cast iron skillet, and then guess what I put on top? I put a little bit of sea salt and a lot of olive oil. And it's just so delicious, and I cook it for about three minutes on each side, and it's still a little bit raw in the center. I just absolutely love it. It falls apart. It's just so delicious, and I'm so grateful for John over at WildAlaskanSeafoodBox.com for hooking us up, so you can get wild Alaskan seafood straight to your door, and it comes really fast, which is awesome. Anyways, guys, I hope you enjoy the podcast with Dr. Ben Lynch. If you do so, I'm sure he would appreciate a follow on social media. Without further ado from me, head over.
Dr. Ben Lynch, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm a fan of what you do. I've got your book, Dirty Jeans, sitting here in front of me. And this is a book that has literally created a huge subculture in the world. There's people who base their supplement recommendations and their supplement consumption based on your book. And I don't know if there's a company based around your book as well, but I believe there's that too. People that have really taken the deep dive into your teachings. So this is definitely an honor to have you on the show. Yeah, awesome to be here, Ben. And thanks for sharing my message and look forward to helping serve your audience and yourself. Yeah, how did you get into epigenetics? So just to give the audience kind of a framework here, maybe of what epigenetics is and then how you got into it, be very interesting. And, and we'll get down to the nitty gritty at some point, but just starting off kind of high level. Yeah, well, you know, throughout my life, starting early years, early teens, we all probably had the mindset that you kind of look at your parents, you look at your grandparents and your brothers and your sisters, and you're hearing what runs in your family and your family history. And Uncle Jack's an alcoholic and Grandma Joe is bipolar and, you know, so-and-so died of a heart attack at 45. And, well, I got a bright future ahead of me. Mm -hmm. So you just hear these things. And, you know, at a young kid and early 20s, you don't really think anything of it because you think you're healthy and vibrant. What really stood out for me was one day I was standing in the hallway. I got pushed up against the wall somehow in the hallway. and My stepmom was conversing with this lady and they were talking about schizophrenia. My stepmom uh, said, oh yeah, schizophrenia runs in your genes and you're hitting pre-puberty and, and it hits around puberty. You know, around 18 is when it starts to affect you. And I'm, I'm like 16, 17. I'm thinking, I got a year to go. That was one of the first things to hit. You know, and it just kind of evolved from there because when you have about 70, 80% of your patients doing really well and, you know, the remaining not, I always focus on the not. I do celebrate my successes kind of. That's one of my weaknesses is not celebrating successes. I focus on weaknesses. From that does come a strength and that is trying to figure out why things are happening the way they are. And so I really stuck into individualizing treatments and understanding why specific people struggled. And that led to epigenetics through Dr. Bruce Lipton's work. And epigenetics is basically what influences our genes. We think of our genes as static, immobile things. And our eye color, skin color, hair color, those are pretty much static. You're born with that. And that thinking is what goes down to all the other 18,000 genes in your human body. But that's not the case. If I say lemon, lemon, sour lemon, police car, murder, you know, there's all sorts of things happening right now in your brain that's stimulating certain things. You may have gotten warmer, your heart rate may have increased, you may have started salivating. That's how fast epigenetics works. Interestingly, maybe the question that I have is what percentage then, if we know that eye color and hair color and height maybe and body composition structure maybe can't, or composition wouldn't, shouldn't be included there, but body structure maybe can't be influenced genetically or epigenetically, do we have any kind of scope as to what level of influence? And is it the type of thing that maybe changes as we age? So like, you know, being exposed to one thing as a child may have a different influence than if you're an adult. Yeah. And vice versa. Yes. Fantastic question. And I'm surprised I haven't been asked that before. While I haven't seen a specific study saying that this percentage of our genes have a lot of epigenetic controls and these have, you know, very static, that's just how it is. But what I can reference is cancer and other conditions. And I research every single day. I'm researching and I've got research papers all over my desk. So when you're looking at various conditions like celiac disease, you know, that's a genetic cause. If you start looking for genetic causes of rheumatoid arthritis or ulcerative colitis or Crohn's or ADHD or depression or cancer of all types, you're basically finding that it's mostly epigenetic. Cancer is on the high side from what I've seen in research, which seems really, really high compared to all the other papers I've seen, 
the high side is 5% genetic. On average, what I'm seeing is 1% of all cancers are genetic. And then Parkinson's, again, half to 1% of Parkinson's is genetic. And 23andMe was basically, you know, she was married to one of the founders of Google. I think it was Sergey Brin, whose mom has Parkinson's. I can't remember. It was one of the Google founders' moms has Parkinson's. And so 23andMe was kind of this way to pool a bunch of data from the human population and then ask certain questions in survey with approval to see if maybe say, you know, I did 23andMe and they have a questions like, do any of your family members struggle with Parkinson's? And you say yes or no. Then they can pool that data and say, okay, well, if 90% of Parkinson's people are saying that yes, and they have this set of genes, then they can say, okay, there's potential here that these genes are associated with Parkinson's. But they have not finding that. Again, it's like half to 1% of most conditions are genetic. There's one more level to that question was, I guess, before we move on, if I'm exposed to something as a child, knowing that my nervous system is developing, my body synthesizing more protein, my DNA may be more active, would that make it a greater likelihood that I'm going to, to experience a potential negative symptom in adulthood rather than experience something in adulthood? So basically, will it have a bigger kind of fat tail effect on the back end to be exposed to negative things in childhood. And the reason I bring that up, I've got children as do you, and I'm hyper aware of this paradigm that exists in the world of like, oh, they're kids, let them eat that, it's okay. Or hey, they're kids, they'll be all right. And I go in the opposite direction. Like I'm like the mother hen protector, right? I was like, well, why would I want this person whose genes are evolving, whose nervous system is developing, whose cells are experiencing these epigenetic shifts at every second, to experience anything other than the optimal state? Short answer to that question is a huge major yes. As a parent, and you are providing your kids, I shudder to think that this happens, and it does. We are in America. You know, I'll be walking through the airport, and I will be seeing babies literally being given spoonfuls of Coca-Cola. French um, fries, man. French fries. Be crazy. <laughs> yeah, and I would see parents, you know, having obese children at probably seven I remember vividly seeing this thin father with a child who was grossly obese, having, I'm not kidding you, plates full of burgers and fries and milkshakes. I almost went over there, but I didn't. You know, there's more to the story than we know. But in short, you know, our decisions as parents and during pregnancy, we can't forget that. A buddy of mine, Sean Bean, had a great point on his Facebook post one day. He goes, you know, some of us spend tens of thousands of dollars on our wedding and months of planning, and then we just get pregnant randomly or mm -hmm. plan, but you know, and that's it. So yeah. I thought that was a very, very good point. Yeah. It's an entitlement thing, right? People think, oh, I'm entitled to have a child. And I think it should be, I think it's going a little bit far to think you should have to write a test, but I think there should be a level of education where, okay, you got pregnant. You should be aware of all of these best practices to help your child flourish in this world, but nobody seems to care that much. So speaking about the pregnancy thing, I think there's, you know, even if we look a little bit deeper, I'd love to have you speak of cross-generational epigenetics, which mm. seems to be this very interesting thing that exists and can potentially go back a certain number of generations. I'd love for you to give us a little more information about that and really how much your grandmother was exposed to DDT and you're going to be there for having some potential predisposition to estrogen dysregulation or breast cancer. Is that reality? It is reality. I don't talk about this very much as much as I want to, because ultimately it's kind of, what do you do about it? Disempowering. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and we will talk about it now because it's an important thing to understand, but it is ultimately, I don't like talking about things that we don't have control over. Ultimately, you do have control over what your grandkids get, right? And that's maybe the empowering. Yes, side of that. that's true. 
So when you understand there's, yeah, you can always flip things around, right? There's always a political spin if you want. That's a great point. I have yet to figure out how I can turn this into a positive, A, because I haven't really been focusing on it too much, but you know, your point of spinning it into, hey, since this can happen, then you can really empower your grandchildren now. And I do talk about that with pregnancy, but not on the backside. So what you're talking about is of cross-translational, it's called translational epigenetics. Mm-hmm. You're translating over to your next generation what their genes are going to be programmed, how they're going to be programmed. And you're thinking, well, that sounds kind of creepy. Well, why would you do that? Well, imagine you're in a war zone, okay? As a future mom and dad, you don't have kids yet. Future mom and dad, everything is glorious. You're fine. And then a war hits. There's bombs being dropped. You're running, you're sprinting. You know, there's food shortages. There's chemicals in the air. There's loud noises constantly. There's tons of epinephrine and adrenaline flowing through your blood. And all that is influencing your baby. And it's influencing the genetics of your baby. And it's turning the certain genes on and certain genes off because it's preparing your baby to survive in that specific environment where they're going to be born. It's a survival of the fittest thing. Imagine if we did not have translational epigenetics, what would happen? You're in a war zone. The baby's in a complete cocoon, isolated completely from the mother's hormones and vitamins and minerals. It just has this perfect little environment. And then it's introduced into the world. And it has no inherent understanding of what's going to happen. And when you say inherent understanding, well, what do you mean by that? I mean, the genes have no preparation of what's going to hit. And so then it becomes chaos. So translational epigenetics is actually allows survivability of the future generations. And if you look at famines in Ireland and England back centuries ago, these were called thrifty genes. The children of parents who were starving during pregnancy, they were really, really good at being thrifty with the amount of caloric intake and nutritional intake they received. So what happened? Well, they were introduced in the world and the famine was over. Famine was over. Now food was plentiful. What do you think happened? Obesity. So obesity, is that the only reason for obesity? Oh, no. It's an epigenetic susceptibility that the genes are pre-programmed. Now, can you undo that pre-programming? Good question. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But you can still influence those particular genes. And when I showed Dr. Robert Navio my book, and we were having discussions about it, and he's looked at my genetic uh, report strategy and, and what have you, Bob sat down and he's like, we've had multiple discussions. And he goes, hey, Ben, you know, what you talk about or what we call in genetics, eco alleles. I was like, huh, tell me more. He goes, the genes that you talk about, MTHFR, COMT, DAO, with for, you know, regarding histamine and dopamine and nitric oxide, all that, these are eco alleles. And what I mean by eco allele is they're environmentally influenced heavily and they're selected for generations over time to allow survivability of specific people in specific environments under specific situations. So MTHFR was passed down for individuals typically living in malarial infested areas. Why? Because MTGFR acts more slowly. It allows conservation of a different type of folate to allow red blood cell, white blood cell platelets to form. And you need those with malaria because malaria destroys all that. So they need more of a different type of folate to survive. And so in other areas, you know, MTGFR was not plentiful because possibly they had huge amounts of folate in their environment or they did not have sun in the huge amounts. So there's reasons why we've inherited these genes. The problem is, it's not really a problem, it's just a lack of understanding, is that we're no longer living in those environments under those specific conditions. Right. So one thing you said that I'd love to just mention is 
you still haven't yet found a positive reason to make people aware of these epigenetic changes. Well, exactly the reason that you started researching genetics, right? You created an awareness. You had a fear-based awareness around, gosh, I have this predisposition. What can I do right now to change it? And I think for anybody out there, if you shine a light and you go, hey, if you don't pay attention to this, you're going to die young. Obviously, there's subjectivity as far as age, but like, hey, you got to start paying attention to this or you're not going to thrive. Many people, not all, but many people will actually start to take action on it, we hope, right? I know for myself, yeah. if somebody said, hey, like you're going to be predisposed to this, if you just take these couple of vitamins or they, you know, get some sun exposure or don't get obese, maybe that awareness helps people take action earlier. Yeah. I mean, it's, there's two things that change people from my basic understanding of, of this, and it's fear and pleasure, mm-hmm. pleasure and pain. If you touch a hot burner once, you're going to remember not to touch that again. You know, you have sex. It's like, oh, that felt good. You want to have sex again. If you start running, it kind of hurts in the beginning. And then you out of yourself for doing it. And then you start feeling better the next day or that night. You sleep amazingly well, the best night you've sleep you've ever had. And then you tie that. It's like, oh, what, what happened? How did my best sleep? Oh, I went for a run. I want to have a best night's sleep again. I guess is the flip side of that, where some people will go, ah, screw it, I'm going to toast anyway. So we should also acknowledge that. And hopefully most people don't take that. Mentality. I have family members with that mindset. You know, it really troubled me in the beginning. And it, it troubled me as a health professional for decades. It bothered me as an individual for decades, as a health professional for a decade plus. It still troubles me, but I've learned to understand where they are in their journey. And all I do is I just plant the seed, give them you know, some information and however they receive it is totally cool. It's up to them. And I'm able to just leave it at that. As you said, there is a movement from Dirty Jeans. It has created this subculture, which is really cool. But I've warned them, the people who are really, really thrilled about Dirty Jeans, what they do is they buy the book for all their friends and all their family. And they say, here, here, you got to read this. You got to read this. And I told them, I said, I love that you're doing that. But I really want to warn you right now is that some of them are going to say, no, thanks. I don't want it. And you're going to be really, you know, well, you got to read it. It can really help you. They're not ready to receive it. So you just have to let it go. And it's tough. Yeah, I think if people aren't willing or ready to change their behavior, I could see someone's arguing. It's almost better that they just don't know. Like if I'm not willing to stop drinking alcohol, if I'm not willing to stop smoking cigarettes and eating McDonald's, I don't want another negative health effects. Maybe I don't believe enough in myself and my ability to stop. It's this idea of being a victim, right? I don't feel empowered enough to change. So therefore, I don't want to know. I see this with my kids. I'm learning how to deal with it. So Xbox, you know, mm-hmm. I it. so I didn't have video games really as a kid. And I go to my friend's houses and I would play them. And I was like, wow, this is so cool. Loved it. And so you want to provide those opportunities for your kids. But video games now are so addictive. It's not a block where you're moving, you know, your little Atari stick to bounce a ball back and forth. You know, your mm-hmm. dopamine hit from that isn't very big, but your dopamine hit playing Fortnite's massive with all the time pressure and the zone closing in and and sniper shots and oh God, whatever. So I'd have these conversations with my youngest boy and I'm like, you know, I really don't want you playing that very much. He goes, yeah, I know dad. And then he'd go back upstairs and start playing again. And that is what that damn game does. It literally ruins people because they get such a huge amount of dopamine hit from the game that when they unplug from the game, that their normal life sucks. Yep. Because, you know, hanging out with your parents or your friends, you don't get that much dopamine from them. So it's not fun. Um, how old is your son? He's 11, going on 12. And so what I want to say to that, I want to expand a little bit more, is I get mad at him. I was like, you got to stop playing this. 
And then you could just see him just sink and go internal and sad. And it just crushes me. So we got rid of it. And then this stupid quarantine hit and a friend brought over Xbox and it's starting again. I implemented a rule in my house where my kids don't play video games yet, but I actually just caved and allowed them to get Minecraft because I was like, there could be utility with that. Minecraft is pretty cool. Um, yeah. But my rule is for every hour that you read, you get an hour of Minecraft. So balances, right? So if, if they want that, it's almost like you have to work a little bit for it. And it sucks that it makes it a reward, but at least it's balanced. So if they want to play an hour, hey, man, you got to read an hour of a book. How do you enforce that? They enforce it themselves. They give them a timer. And so they set the timer to whatever time they, they have to show me the timer. And when the timer goes off and they're able to go and play the game, I literally bought them each timers. I'm like, hey, you got this little thing. When it, when it dings, you're able to go and play your game for the equal amount of time. And I think that's a reasonable thing. Like that is, you're, you're learning, you're expanding your brain, you're improving your ability to read and acquire knowledge, and you're still getting these rewards at the end. So hopefully, again, who knows, right? I'm not perfect at parenting, but working on it, certainly. You know, Minecraft, I think, is uh, one of those games where it's fun, but the dopamine hit isn't massive. I don't think you could do that with Fortnite. I would block time through the parenting app. And, you know, I know we're derailing a little bit here, but this still ties into what we're talking about because there's, you know, some people can be wired what their, where their life is, is kind of lower dopamine. You know, their genes for producing dopamine are actually not so strong and yet their genes for eliminating dopamine are really strong. So they kind of have this low dopamine underlying genetic susceptibility their whole life, which does have benefits. The problem is when they get in front of Xbox, they have this huge spike. It's just like, look at actors and actresses and famous people, they're movie stars, and they have all this attention, massive amounts of attention. And they're on the red carpet and they go home and it's quiet. It's just them sitting on the couch. They went from dopamine way up here to dopamine way down here in a matter of hours. And so they turn to alcohol, they turn to drugs because they can't deal with that huge swing. Musicians, you know, 100,000 people listening to them, watching them, cheering them on. And they go home in their apartment, really? And they just crash. Right. So they turn to cocaine. Why do you have a honeymoon after your wedding? I think the same thing. Because I remember when my wife and I got married, we got married as a small wedding, but we still had like 24 people around and it was great. And then they all left and it was just us. And it was all the tension and focus was on us, 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 us for like days, like two days. And then they all left and I was just like, wow. And the next day I woke up and it was quiet and I was like, this is why there's a honeymoon out here. We didn't go on a honeymoon. I couldn't. I was in the middle of a big job. That's brilliant. And so actually that's the perfect segue. Let's unpack that from a genetic standpoint, right? So when you speak of dopamine pathways, are you referring to CompT specifically? I'm sure there's a number of them, but I'd love to kind of start unpacking. Okay. So someone has this predisposition versus that one, maybe how their brain would respond to something like that. And then maybe some of the supplemental or nutritional interventions you would suggest for people who maybe lack dopamine or maybe someone who has the CompT or again, maybe I don't know how well versed you are in that pathway, but I'd love to have you explain it as best you can. Let me back up a little bit on this. So when I wrote the book, Dirty Genes, first you was like, well, okay, well, what do you mean by the title? A gene performs work. Just know that. So there's a lot of science and it can get over your head and you just automatically recoil because um, our ancestral brain is telling us to conserve energy. So we don't have to go out and expend energy and seek for food. So anything is difficult for you to do, you kind of naturally recoil from it because it's expending energy. So lean into it right now. And because your ancestral brain is telling you not to, but let's go, you know, push against it. You have a fridge in your house. You can go get some more food. <laughs> so a gene is something that performs work. And 
you know, we have about 18,000 different genes in the human body. And they don't really work on an individual basis. Some genes do work on an individual basis, but usually it's a team effort. You don't have a soccer team and we have all this focus on the striker. Oh, the striker of FC Barcelona is amazing. They, they score all the goals, and but it's probably the midfield and defense, you know, that set them up, right? So when we talk about singular genes right now, and we will be, you have to start simply. You have to understand that everything works as a team and it's, it's not just CMT working with your dopamine. It's a huge amount of team effort. And I walk you through that in the book. So at the end of the book, I talk with you about how this gene and this gene and this gene and this gene are all working together. And if they're not all functioning, this one gene won't work very well. So with that said, a dirty gene is a gene that's not functioning optimally. It's either working faster or slower. With dopamine, there's multiple genes involved with it, but we are going to focus on one of them. And that one particular gene works on the elimination of dopamine. And there's research that talks about if you have no genetic variants in this particular gene, it's what's typically found in all of us, it works quite fast. And it actually works about 50% faster than people who had inherited a genetic variant where the gene is a little bit different. And so it's not really a mutation. You think of it as just a bit different. It changes its shape. It can work more slowly. So the majority of us have a COMT gene that works quickly. So the first step of our dopamine elimination is pretty fast. And if that happens, this is great in terms of various reasons. One, you can perform under pressure. Stressful situations, you can handle really well. You could be a great ER doc, surgeon, you could be a competitive athlete in multiple sports. You could do challenging things and lean into them and go for it. And that's fantastic. Negatives, your brain wanders. You're kind of ADD, like you have lack of motivation. You can tend towards depression. You can seek out addictions. It could be shopping, sex, drugs, alcohol, cigarette smoking, all these increase your dopamine in various ways. So if you've inherited a gene from your mom and dad, and you do, so let's say your dad passes you down a COMT gene, which is typical, and your mom also sends you down a COMT gene, which is typical. You've inherited a COMT gene where it works naturally quickly, and your dopamine is going to be naturally cleared. So you may have these strengths and susceptibilities. Okay, so what do you do about it? Glad you asked. You can consume more protein. Simple. It's just specific amino acids or is it just protein in general that's going to help support it? Tyrosine specifically, but you can do tyrosine specifically and have a good result. First, I like for people to think macro. I want people to think, okay, just protein. Because the last thing I want people to do is going out and buying a supplement with tyrosine. Because if you isolate your nutrients and you're focusing on one gene, remember you have a whole team at play here. And you have 18,000 teammates. So a lot of us will focus on one or two teammates and you're going to lose the game. You know, you're going to push those teammates too hard. You're going to lean in on them too hard and they're going to be working too hard. And the other 18,000 of them are not going to get the support they need. So I want people thinking macro first, the fundamentals first, because while we, again, we talk about seven, eight genes in the book, Dirty Genes, I do that not to overwhelm you, but in everything that you're doing in that book, as I explained, is cleaning and supporting all your genes. I just can't discuss 18,000 of them. It's not even possible. Not yet. Not yet. So that's someone who has a standardized or standard CMT expression. And now how about the other end of that? So we've got heterozygous, we've got homozygous, recessive. 
Mm-hmm. What we're looking at as far as how those things may express. And maybe you can just go to the opposite of the spectrum and say someone who has double recessive CMT perspective. Good point. So what's the flip side of that? So the flip side is a slower CMT. Okay. And what's that do? Well, imagine what CMT's job. Part of his job, not his only job. Part of his job is to move out dopamine. So if you've inherited a type of CMT from your mom and dad that's slower, what's going to happen to your dopamine? It's going to stay elevated. It's going to stay higher. And so if your dopamine stays higher, what's that going to do? It's going to allow you to focus, be driven, type A, get your homework done, be one of those really good students and always have your homework done because you can focus and get your stuff done. It's going to give you nice, I've got to stay focused on dopamine here. So all that's great. You're going to perform really well at jobs where you need to stay alert. So maybe you could be a security guard. Maybe you could have a night shift. It's kind of boring, pacing halls or streets, but you've got enough dopamine in your brain to keep you A, awake, and B, you know, you're okay with these kind of boring jobs. It's not so boring to you because you've got so much going on in your brain that you can entertain yourself. You're probably going to be good with reading books, and you're not going to really seek out activities which are more dangerous, so you're going to have probably less uh, wounds and broken bones. I'll give you a short story. I was skiing with my boys one evening, night skiing, my oldest boy sitting next to me on the chairlift, he goes, oh, dad, I got to show you this one shoot that I go with my friends. And then my middle boy, Matthew, who has very similar genes as I do. So Matthew and I are more slow CMT. We have higher dopamine levels in our brain and, and Tasman has a lot faster. And he clears his dopamine out. So we get off the chairlift, we're skiing down and he, he just stops. Hockey stop right next to the edge of this trail. And he goes, yeah, dad, let's hit it. And I look down and it's like this straight drop through a narrow chute of trees. And the kid's 13, you know, it just spits you out, you know, pretty far down at the bottom and it kind of levels out. But you're hauling butt through that chute. And he goes, all right, let's go follow me. And he's gone. Done. Matthew and I look at that and we're like, oh, God. You know, but he needs that. He needs right. that intensity. Matthew and I, we have enough dopamine just doing the groomer. We're good. That right. that hit. So the negatives of that slower dopamine is one, we're going to be a little bit more timid, which has benefits and cons. And the other thing is we're going to be more prone to irritability, insomnia, heart issues, cardiovascular problems, migraines, headaches, Parkinson's. All these are increasing susceptibility to having higher dopamine. You're like, whoa, Parkinson's, why? Because high dopamine levels, if they stay high and you can't eliminate them, it turns into what's called a dopamine quinone and it's very toxic. And so if you look at the research on the part of the causation of Parkinson's, dopamine quinone is a big one. So I started looking and talking with folks who have Parkinson's, and it's interesting to see a a number of them do have a slower COMT, but the research isn't really picking up on it yet. One thing there that I want to point out that you mentioned, but just like emphasis a little bit, is is this a a stress aversion? So I have double recessive COMT. So I think it's important to acknowledge that we may perceive an an event, just like you said, as more stressful than somebody else. The way I experience that personally is I'll see something in front of me as stressful and I'll usually go do it anyways, but it takes me so much longer to recover from that stressful event. Mm -hmm. I'll just stay elevated. And, you know, something I learned early in my bodybuilding career was if I trained with classical music, it kept me level. Whereas if I trained with like heavy metal music, I couldn't stay focused and I would like almost get anxious. It's like anxiety is that thing that kind of follows that stress. And so therefore your brain starts to create an association around, oh, I do this stressful thing. I get anxious. I don't want to do that. So, you know, maybe people who have more of a predisposition to anxiety, there's obviously many causes of anxiety, but maybe there's some correlation that I've personally drawn there that 
makes me then it's almost like a, a harder fight to do the things you're afraid of because you know at the other end of it you're not going to feel awesome for a few minutes and until you learn these kind of coping strategies which you know is a big thing that i'm sure you talk about but learning to bring yourself back down is a necessity for people with this type of expression i think it's extremely important and this gene is, is very, very prevalent in the population. And it's yeah. very, very influencing, influential on your behaviors and your actions and your lack of actions as you were sharing. And it's beautiful how you noticed that you're in the weight room listening to hard rock or you know heavy metal. And like a lot of people need to increase their dopamine so they can lift and they're taking their pre-workout and they're dumping their caffeine and they're trying to get all jacked up. And if you dumped all that caffeine and listen to hard rock, right? I'd have a heart attack. You start getting anxious. Yeah. These people who are consuming pre-workout and need that caffeine, those are the faster CMT types and they love working out. So for you switching to classical, the guys are in the gym are like, oh, what a wuss. But they look at your physique and they're like, oh, he's not really a wuss. He can handle it. And it's what interesting. And if you start saying, look, I've tuned in. I know I'm more anxious and I, I'm, it's just how I, I'm wired. If you understand your genes and you understand that you are slower CMT like you are, you can make those little shifts and those little shifts are major because you could have associated working out as stressful, but it was the environment in which you were working out, which was stressful. And you switched your environment, which is again, an eco allele. Yeah. And for anyone out there who, who seems to experience that, one of the greatest things I've done is, is meditation and, and learning to bring your default resting mindset just down into a slightly more parasympathetic place. Because if you're starting at this kind of sympathetic place, it's very easy for you to kind of teeter over the edge and start getting hyper arousal and anxiety. So for me, like you seem to be, I'm the most calm guy in the world until I'm not, right? It's this yes. idea of Hulk smash, <laughs> like, you know, Hulk, no smash, Hulk, no smash. And all of a sudden it's like, oh shit. And I've learned to, thank goodness, have some intervention strategies, but that was the reality of my childhood is like, I didn't understand it. And if someone had explained this to me, it would have been such an amazing, empowering concept to go, hey, I mean, just stay a little calmer or maybe take these supplements or maybe be aware of your environment because it's something super arousing. Like even being in a public place where there's lots of people, for me, I'm like, I want to be at home by myself in a room, reading a book. And if I'm in the car, the music's off, like that kind of stuff. I want low level stimulus yes. because my brain just gets really hyper aroused really fast. And then I, like, I get focused really, really well, but my brain gets this hyper aroused and then it starts getting you know, almost anxious. Just the other night, you know, and, and my wife is a faster CMT. Her head hits a pillow at night, bam, she's gone. You know, she tends towards depression as well and anxiety. You can have anxiety having low dopamine also and for other things. So we're watching a show and, oh, my God, I can't watch it. It's too intense. It's this show on Netflix called Outlanders. It's insane. But she's sitting there watching. And I was like, how can you watch this? And, I, and she's like, well, don't get mad. I was like, I'm not mad. I just don't understand. Well, we're having this discussion. Her dopamine levels are getting to a point where she's happy. And Tasman, my oldest son, he watches horror movies. I can't watch those. <laughs> Same as me. I stopped when I was a kid, man. It's, like, it's just the metaphor that I give myself is like just pushes you over the edge. Like yeah. you can get close to the edge and you can live there, but get something that's super stressful in any way and it's throwing you over the edge. It would be awesome, not as a discrimination tool, but as an optimal performance tool to do genetic testing and evaluation to see what type of student you're going to be, what type of focus and such you'll have. So you can go into an occupation where you will survive and thrive. If I was a neurosurgeon or a surgeon or an EMT or an ER doc or an oncologist, I'd fail. I'd fail fast or I would kill people. You know, if I was a cop, I'd probably 
beat the crap out of people. Sure. I think so, it's important to acknowledge, like through my career, I think I towed the line and I lived the edge for so long. Like now I, I think I'd want to be a surgeon. I think I'd want to do those things that are the slightly more high stressful jobs. But when I was a kid, there's no way I could have done it. I didn't have the coping strategies. I didn't understand. I thought there was something wrong with me. Like you speak of this, this idea of like, oh no, that something's wrong. I, I always have this feeling. I can't do stressful things. I was afraid of, of grownups. Like there were so many levels of stress and frustration in my life. And I think there's probably a lot of people listening who go through this. And I think that's why it's important for us to kind of dive into this at, at a deeper level. And for whatever reason, I developed resilience. And maybe it's just this fact that I've, I've intentionally curated the parasympathetic activities. The things you speak about on your Instagram page, it's like sunshine, it's some meditation, it's proper vitamin, lots of protein, make sure I'm, I'm supporting my internal environment and my internal, the health of my nervous system, ultimately, right? Well, I don't know, well you've, you've also listened yeah. You know, you've probably made some unconscious decisions, which then you reflected inwards and said, huh, when I listen to classical, I feel better. When I listen to heavy metal, I feel anxious. So a lot of us are so focused outward that we don't take the time to reflect on how heavy metal or these other types of musics or, or foods or the other things are triggering our genes. And so, as I say in the book multiple times over and over and over again, you have to tune in. You have to go inward to understand what's going on with you. And my kids, a couple of years ago, uh, I was walking by the donuts and in the regular grocery store, and I was like, God, those smell good, huh? And my kids go, God, Dad, yeah, we've never had a donut. And uh, they good? I said, yeah, they're good. And they said, well, how can you just walk by that so easily? I said, because I look at it and I go beyond the taste and the smell. I go to what it's going to do to me long-term. It's going to cause me irritability. I'm going to have a crash. I'm going to get fatigue. I'm going to start screaming at you. I'm going to get gluten. And so I'm going to have gut issues. I'm going to have skin issues. And so I look at that and I think what's going to happen to me if I eat it. And it's super easy. I can just admire it, smell it, and enjoy the smell and keep going. That's a really great piece of advice, both for adults and for, for parents out there. I think just that, that concept of just starting to open the door of something that happens as a result of your actions. I think many children don't get that concept taught to them. I do this and therefore I see this repercussion or this causative action that happens afterwards. I think that's huge. So speaking of donuts, let's use that as an example. And you saying, hey, I know that all these negative things are going to happen to me as a result of eating this specific maybe to this dopamine or specific to any kind of physiological response. Why does that happen? So food has numerous components to it and processed food, especially let's focus on processed food, shall we? Processed food is caloric dense. Processed food is designed. When I was studying at the University of Washington and I was going through the degrees, you know, what I was going to major in, there was a degree called food science and food science is the science of understanding how food is impacting the consumer. So look at fast food. You're trying to cut the habit, but you can't. It's caloric dense food, which goes right to your brain for dopamine hit. There's a great video called The Pleasure Trap. It's a TEDx talk. I'll link to it in the show notes. Yeah. So watch The Pleasure Trap. And Doug Lyle, PhD, the psychiatrist or psychologist, one of the two, I think he's a psychologist, does a brilliant job in a very simple, humorous, short 15 minute type TEDx talk. He walks you through how processed food spikes your dopamine. And if you spike your dopamine from processed food, let's say you eat a donut, what's going to happen when someone offers you a salad? Yeah, exactly. No, thanks. And this, so the level of your palate is one thing, right? Because now your palate's all distorted and like, ah, it's, I don't have the crunch. I don't have the fat. I don't have all these things exploding in my mouth. And then at the level of the brain, obviously. It's both. 
you know, mm-hmm. food science is feeling your mouth and your sensation. You're getting huge amounts of input. The taste buds on your tongue are exploding with joy and flavor. Sugar is more addictive than actually heroin. There's another great book. It's red cover. It's something to do with sugar. And he walks you through the history of sugar mills and how sugar was lobbied. And they've done tests and experiments of how addictive sugar was. And God, I'll have to email you what it is. Yeah, I'll look for it. Yeah, it's it's very good. But anyway, so once we give our kids Coca-Cola or sugar because we're being nice, it's very tough to transition them. It's possible. But in the video, the pleasure trap walks you through on how to get out of the pleasure trap. I forget the duration, but it's like 24 hours or 48 hours or it's actually a bit longer, maybe even five, seven days. But your taste buds renew themselves. And so if you are able to limit your input or consumption of these addictive types of foods for seven days. And the fastest way you can do it, actually, he does talk about this. The fastest way to to reset your taste buds is a water fast. Fasting with kids is, I was actually asking about that. It's a very subjective thing. Like, I don't really know if I want a six, eight-year-old, 10-year-old to start, I mean, maybe a 10, fine, but like a young child, like it's a little bit, I don't know, right? I'm sure it's happened many, many times. Yeah. You know, back in our ancestor days, it probably happened a lot. It is a tough situation, but nowadays we have you know, two teenagers and, and I do let them, I don't like using that term because we're all unique individuals, but anyway, you know, they go out and experiment, you know, they go to Chick-fil-A and just, I crush what I've done now since they're teenagers and their friends are eating it, they're eating it. I make sure I jump in at that moment and say, Hey, look at that acne on your face. What's going on there? I know dad, it's from the Chick-fil-A. So, Hey, where's your liver support supplement? I need that. So then they take the liver support supplement, their acne goes away. We'll come back to that because that's an interesting kind of discussion, but I want to I want to wrap up this brain food explosion okay. thing. One thing I think that's important since we're on this track of parenting, and I speak about parenting literally every podcast because it's my highest value. Parents who give their children, call it good tasting alternatives, you know, these quote unquote healthy foods that are hyper palatable, but maybe lower calorie, or maybe they're just some type of switch out for the junkie versions. Any thoughts on that? Because like clearly it's doing the same thing to the dopamine pathways from my perspective. So I just try to eliminate it, right? But I'd be curious to hear if you had any thoughts. I have a lot of thoughts on that. It's a very good point. So MDs, type of medicine, medical doctors, conventional, traditional medicine, and naturopathic medicine. So I'm a naturopathic doctor. I work and focus on utilizing nature to heal and support us. That's my focus. What will happen is I'm getting to your point in a roundabout way here. I come in as a patient to a doctor and I have acid reflux. If I go to an MD, they're going to give me an antacid. Mm-hmm. If I go to an ND, they could do multiple, multiple things. We have so many vast tools. You know, a medical doctor basically just says, here's an antacid and that's it. As a naturopathic doctor, we have so much we could do. But if I go to an ND who's totally focused on just getting rid of the acid reflux, they could give me DGL, a licorice extract. Chew this. That's it. So it's still a pill for an ill. It is not focusing on the whole problem. So if you are removing caloric dense fast food, that's great. But if you are switching it out with a healthier alternative, no food coloring, no corn syrup type of things, it's still sweet. It's still floating their taste buds. They're still getting that dopamine hit. They're still going to be averse to the salads. They're still going to be averse to healthy food. And that is a problem. And it's a problem 
we all face as parents because the damn schools and soccer coaches and football coaches are, are using <laughs> living the same life as reward. And so as much as we fight it in our own home, and it is a fight just like Xbox and Fortnite is a fight, you sign up your kid to go to gymnastics or dance or piano or outdoor school to experience these things. And then you come back and you learn that they were exposed to massive amounts of candy and fast food in every single one of those situations. Yep. My little piece of a parenting advice, not to you, just to the audience, I guess, but it's it's this creating an identity for them. It's this idea of we don't do that. We take care of our body. And, and I just indoctrinate their unconscious mind with, you know, since they're born, it's like, oh, we don't eat that. And they'll go and say that now, like, oh, I don't eat that stuff or we don't eat that. And it's becoming part of their identity because you understand, like, you, you'll always rise and fall to the level of your identity. So yeah. you identify as someone who's strong and lean and athletic. That's two things I always say to them. We don't eat that stuff. And you're an athlete. I say to them every day, you're an athlete. So I guess I want them to treat themselves like an athlete. And we always speak about learning as well. But I want them to think like, hey, you're an athlete. What does an athlete eat like? How do you fuel your body? And I'm trying to do my best not to create psychological issues around food. And if they want to eat something or at a party, I don't even say a word. Typically, their response is, oh, I don't eat that or I'm going to choose something healthy. And certainly an uphill battle for parents who are already that far down the line of having let their kids do it. But starting to just go to the level of the identity. So rather than punishing kids or taking it away from them, you go to the level of identity and you're trying to get them to think about what type of person are you? Are you someone who loves and respects their body? Are you someone who, who fuels their body? Are you someone who just eats whatever's right in front of them? Because it's in the moment. Yeah. Yeah. So much to be spoken about there, but I want to keep going because there's some interesting stuff. Actually, you, you spoke a little bit about, well, let's just kind of come back to circle with that acne thing. So your son eats Chick-fil-A, breaks out in acne. Now, is that happening at the level of the microbiome? Is that happening at the level of the liver? You mentioned liver support. So is that such a stress to his liver at, at that level that it's causing this bacterial shift? I thought acne was a bacterial thing. It is heavily bacterial. I've played with all sorts of weird things. My teenage boy, one of teenage boys, I have two teenagers and one 11-year-old. So I have 11, 14, and 17 at the moment. So the 14-year-old uh, had really bad acne, and he wasn't even eating that badly. He was eating pretty well. So in that situation, I was like, okay, this is definitely hormonal, you know, testosterone kind of peaking a little bit, and hormones are shifting, but this could be microbiome too. You know, they might be switching soaps and so on. So he sprayed a probiotic on his face. And it was noticeable effect within the next day. And so spraying of probiotics on your face can be remarkable. I didn't and know that existed. We do it ourselves. Okay. So we take about three capsules of one of our products called Provida Histaminics. You have to take filtered water. You can't put it in chlorine. Chlorine will kill it. Take filtered water. You put it in a little three ounce spray bottle. You fill up the spray bottle, maybe an ounce or two of water. You open about, you know, three capsules of Provida Histaminics. You dump it in there, shake it. And then you spray it on the clean face in the evening or in the morning, whatever it suits you. And you just let it dry. You just dust it and you keep the spray bottle in the fridge. And you do that for about three days and you dump out the stuff and you redo it again because the bacteria will die. There's no food in there. So you do that and it's remarkable, the change. I've shared this on Facebook Live a few times and parents are just crazy about it. But in terms of food, food is infecting the microbiome. And the microbiome that we think that food is only adjusting our microbiome on the inside and I think the oils that we're secreting possibly, and this is theoretical, maybe the oils that we're secreting from this food is having an effect on the bacteria that are on our skin. If you look at studies of the microbiome, they have a microbiome map of our entire human body. So our gluteal folds have a different type of bacteria and our armpits, different type of bacteria, our faces and necks and, the, and our hair. We have different bacteria everywhere. 
you know, possibly we're changing the environment of our skin and the health of our skin through these foods and fairly quickly. Not only that, but we're overburdening our liver. Would that be a useful application for someone who has a body odor they're trying to get rid of, like hey, this spray bacterial? Yeah. Oh, interesting. Yes. 100%. So rather than 100%. using a typical aluminum-based deodorant, because a lot of people, that's their non-negotiable, right? Including my co-host on the show says, you know, her non-negotiable is I have to use deodorant because if I don't, I stink. And I was like, well, maybe it's a bacterial thing. Maybe the deodorants make it, whatever it is. So like, I don't want to say something she hasn't, but that's her non-negotiable. Like, yeah, well, well, as I say in the book, clean has no smell. I do not use deodorant. I haven't used deodorant forever. I don't even know the last time I used deodorant. There will be times where I start stinking. So actually yesterday I was doing something and I was like, well, I'm kind of smelly today. That's a sign that either my diet isn't so good or I need to jump in the sauna or it's both. With this whole quarantine thing, I will admit I've been sitting in front of the damn TV more than I usually do. But thankfully the sun's coming out here in Seattle and I'm being more active outside again. If you have stinky armpits, that's a microbiome thing. First and foremost, it's in your gut and in your armpits. And then uh, it could also be the foods that you're eating and you're eating things that are making the bad smelly bacteria survive and thrive and you eliminate those and you'll, you'll do better. But you have to figure out what those are. But first, start taking some probiotics and jump on a sauna or just sweat. If you don't have the funds to get a sauna, wear a ton of clothes and go for a walk. Mm-hmm. You know, wear a ton of clothes and lay down in the sun. It doesn't matter. You just need to sweat. And if you can't sweat, then your sympathetic nervous system is off and you need to really focus on cleaning up your environment even more because you might be full of heavy metals or chemicals or what have you. And the more you clean your environment, the more you avoid chemicals, the better ability you have to start sweating and be able to get those out more. You mentioned testing for the bacteria and identifying which ones that are maybe causing these things. Is that something that we can just order a test for? How does that work? Yeah. So, you know, there's a lot of microbiome tests out there nowadays. I forget. I think Ubiome got the FBI has seized and just oh, really? Yeah. They were doing a lot of illegal billing practices, I believe. You know, I believe. I'm not certain on that. I don't read the news. I did a Ubiome test and I was very, very unimpressed with the results. Ubiome has a good promise that you could swab your skin or your ears or your vagina or your anus or your poop or, you know, your nose and your mouth and you could identify different types of bacteria based upon those zones. It's great information, but you get the information back and it's not applicable yet. It doesn't help. Then you have Viome. I love the founder of Viome. Great guy. Let's just down the lake from me. Again, I don't really find too much value in these tests yet. So I'd like looking at the functional testing, meaning that you take a poop, you collect a sample, you send it in the lab, and they say, well, these are the bacteria that you have. These are the ones you don't have. These are good. These are not good. These are kind of good. These are kind of bad. Plus, they look at your fats and other things and your inflammatory markers, I believe. And that's doctor's data. Doctor's data is a great stool test. I also talked about GI map in the book. I'm starting to believe that GI map may not be the best anymore for various reasons. Interesting. So that's a great thing to have. So one thing I've noticed is many naturopathic practitioners will take in these stool tests, look at the microbiome, and often have very kind of standardized protocols anyways. Is there any best practices you could recommend to the audience of like, hey, if you think you have some type of dysbiosis, if you think you have some type of bacterial overgrowth, if you happen to have stinky armpits or some type of funky body odor, here's two or three products you may want to try that wouldn't have any negative effects anyways. Yeah, I will always recoil first and go to lifestyle first. You can't out-supplement a crappy diet. You can't. And when I was talking with my boys, talking about the liver nutrient supplement for their acne, amazing supplement for acne from Seeing Health. 
great stuff. What is it? Liver nutrients from Seeking Health. Seeking Health. That's yeah. not your company. Seeking Health is my company. Is your company? Yeah. Yeah. And then the probiotic is the probiotic for the yep. make into a spray or just take orally. There's some crazy stuff that I do with that supplement that is amazing. My boys started taking the liver nutrients for their acne. And what did it do? What do you think they did? Do you think they went to Chick fil A more? Of course. <laughs> they went to Chick fil A more. And I was like, damn. But I didn't say anything because I knew it would work. And so they got acne. I'm like, dad, your supplement doesn't work anymore. It's like, well, you're overwhelming it. You can't just eat Chick-fil-A every day and take a liver nutrients. Your body doesn't work that way. You're not giving your body any nutrients anymore. Right. You're giving a garbage. You can have some garbage every now and then, but not all the time. And I remember just recently, this was just a couple of weeks ago, Matthew was going to Chick-fil-A with his older brother. And actually he was going to get food. And I was like, where are you going? And he goes, we're going to get some food. And I said, where are you heading? He goes, Chick-fil-A. And he goes, Dad, I've been going to Chipotle and Cadoba like nonstop for like a month. I'm, I'm done. He's like, okay. And he goes, yes, yeah, so I'm going to get Chick-fil-A. And he goes, I gave myself a rule, once a month. It's like, oh, well done. So Absolutely. he self did that on yeah. his own. I said, good job. So one thing I want to come back to is we were speaking of CMT, people who have this are recessive, tend to get very stressed, maybe predisposition to anxiety or stress aversion, interventions. So I think this leads down the path of pushing us into methylation. So I'd love to just segment that or segue that and start going into this concept because everyone throws around methylation. Yeah. Everyone says, oh, you need to support your methylation. I think it's just completely misunderstood. Heavily. I'd love to have you start opening it up for us. Think of methylation as one key on your computer. That's it. It's not this massive, all-encompassing thing that does everything in your body. It's important. You know, let's say it's letter E on your keyboard. You don't have the letter E on your keyboard. You're going to be having a mess typing, but it is not all encompassing. And methylation is very, very important, just as letter E on your keyboard is. Again, it's a team effort. And so there are a numerous amount of genes in the methylation area. And methylation is simply a, a process in the human body, of which there are many. There's glucuronidation sulfuration. There's all sorts of abilities and processes going on in your body. And if you're looking at methylation from a detoxification perspective, this is the Bible of toxicology, all right? Yeah. It's a fantastic book on toxicology. So, you know, obviously a beast. I was reading the detoxification section in there and they say methylation plays a very minor role in detoxification. And I was like, you bastards, right? How many people talk about methylation being associated with detoxification? It's like glutathione is, is your major antioxidant. You have to methylate in order to make your glutathione. That is a misnomer. It's spread throughout the internet like wildfire. It is so full of misinformation. MHFR is associated with glutathione. No, it's not. So what is methylation? Methylation is anything that ends with ation is an action, right? So, you know, inflammation is the act of being inflamed. Mm -hmm. You know, so inform information is the act of informing methylation. It's the act of donating a compound to another compound. That's it. So you go to church, you put money in the plate, you're donating it. Methylation, you're taking a compound in your human body called a methyl group, methylation, the act of giving a methyl group, and you're giving it to something else. So if you methylate dopamine, you give a methyl group to dopamine, you turn it into norepinephrine. If you donate a methyl group to histamine, you make it methyl histamine. If you put a methyl group onto homocysteine, it becomes methyl homocysteine, which none of us have heard about because somehow scientists decided to call methyl homocysteine methionine. 
Okay, so homocysteine gets methylated, becomes methionine. And if you methylate, if you put a methyl group on uracil, which is an RNA base, which we don't want in our DNA because that can cause all sorts of problems and cancer, you methylate your uracil and you turn it into thionine. You turn your RNA base into a DNA base. And so, you know, there's all sorts of things that are really, really important. Carnitine, which a lot of sports folks take for endurance or health or fat burning. Carnitine is a result of methylation. You take lysine, a common amino acid, and you methylate it three times. Now you have carnitine. So it's a very important component in our human body, but it is not all encompassing. A really simple way to check your methylation status is to check your homocysteine level. If your homocysteine level from your doctor is cheap, it's readily available, it's not perfect, but it's a great start, especially given the massive unhealth of our global population, which is also why I think the coronavirus is hurting so many people. You know, it's not the virus that's so bad, it's the lack of health in our population that's so bad. But if you check your homocysteine and it's higher than eight, and in an adult, not great, but it's okay. If your homocysteine is greater than 10, it's a problem. But the labs are saying that if your homocysteine is greater than 15, only then it's a problem. 15 is like bad. It's really bad. You don't want that. You know, you want six, seven. So if someone were to be 15, that would be a suggestion to supplement with methylation? Yes, it would be a definite recommendation to support with methylation. Things we call methylcobalamin, vitamin B12, methylfolate, trimethylglycine. Do you hear these terms methyl? That's right. what you're doing. So you mentioned, I believe you said there was eight specific dirty genes that you were mentioning in the book. If you just want to run through those so listeners could start to have some level of awareness around which ones they should be paying attention to. And yeah. obviously to inform them as to what they're going to get when they pick up your book. Since we're talking about methylation, let's hit the big one out of the park that's talked about heavily. And that's the gene MTHFR. And mm-hmm. genes have abbreviations because... It's the scientific mumbo jumbo in there is massive. The names are long because it tells the geneticists and the biochemists what the job of that gene does. If I look at MTHFR as an individual, that's really all you need to know. As a scientist, I want to know what that is. It has its job. So I look at the whole name. But MTHFR is a major regulator of methylation. If your MTHFR gene is dirty, your methylation process is dirty, 100%. And then methylation is impacting over 200 other genes and more than that. 200 genes that use methyl donors, but all your genes will receive methyl groups to turn them on or off. So most of your genes in your body are actually off and they're turned off from a methyl group being stuck on it. So we have skin cells and cells everywhere on us. And inside these cells, there's a nucleus. And inside that nucleus is our DNA. And most of that DNA is all packed up in a tiny little wad or ball and it's turned off from methylation. And if you're lacking methylation, you can become full of cancer, and MTHFR is associated with cancer. So MTHFR is discussed heavily in the book. It's what I call the the master methylator, or the methylation master, rather. So you consume folates and vitamin B2 to support that particular gene, and you avoid folic acid. Sorry, we've got some destruction downstairs. And then the next gene is COMT. We talked about that heavily. We've talked about how tyrosine is really important for COMT, but that's not only it. So COMT's job is to get rid of dopamine, norepinephrine, epinephrine, and also a component of estrogen. But that gene in order to function needs magnesium. 50% of the population or or thereabouts is deficient in magnesium. And this is something that we did not talk about, Ben, but... Let's say that you look at your genetic report 
and you don't have that slow CMT, but you're fully anxious all the time. You swore you had a slow CMT. You take the quiz in the book, it shows it. I'm a slow CMT. You look at genetic report, I'm actually a fast CMT. How's that possible? Your gene became dirty. Your fast CMT gene that you're born with became a slow CMT gene because you're deficient in magnesium or other things, or you're taking an excess of tyrosine. And I walk you through that in the book. MAO, serotonin, melatonin, and also histamine is in there as well. It's really, really important associated with headaches, migraines, irritability, focus, carb cravings, insomnias. It's a big one. You know, MTHFR, I should have talked about conditions too. You know, you got infertility, preeclampsia, any obstetric issue, a lot of cancers, cardiovascular issues, pulmonary issues, you name it, MTHFR is probably behind it. It's because methylation is that important. It's a really important process, just like the letter E in your keyboard. MAO-A uses riboflavin, a really key. It also produces a huge amount of hydrogen peroxide when it's working. So hydrogen peroxide, your body actually naturally makes and you need glutathione to get rid of that. Well, what's glutathione? Glutathione is your master antioxidant. What genes work with that? Talk about it in the book. Glutathione reductase and glutathione peroxidase, GST and GPX. Dedicated chapter in the book on glutathione. And if your glutathione levels are lower, you're in trouble. I'm going to slow you on on that one because that one hits home for me. So give you a little bit of a 10-second story. When I was competing as a bodybuilder, every time I would get closer and closer to the show, within three to four weeks, I would always start to smell like hydrogen peroxide. And I was like, what the hell is going on? I did find out I have a riboflavin deficiency or had a riboflavin deficiency genetically. I'm seeing a correlation there, right? So my body was obviously producing a lot of hydrogen peroxide started coming out of my pores. So as soon as I started supplementing with riboflavin, it seemed to go away. What's the system there? Any idea? Well, riboflavin is key and it's commonly deficient. I haven't really looked as to why. But you're competing and you are a COMT slower, right? Mm -hmm. So when you are slower COMT, you might be putting more burden on your monoamine oxidase genes, your MAO genes to help with that. You're pumping up more hydrogen peroxide as a result. Stress will will increase hydrogen peroxide uh, levels. Infections, killing things. Immune system produces hydrogen peroxide in order to kill pathogens. So coronavirus, they're actually talking about using I think it's a hydrogen peroxide, you know, nebulized hydrogen peroxide to kill the virus in the lungs. Riboflavin deficiency works across numerous genes. One is the monoamine, so you're actually getting rid of the serotonin, melatonin, and some histamines, but you're also producing hydrogen peroxide. But at that same moment, that same riboflavin that you're taking is supporting other genes, one of which is glutathione reductase which then takes your damaged glutathione and is recycling it. So as you're training and lifting weights and bodybuilding or over, you know, exercising or running or doing any type of exercise, doesn't matter. You know, you're using your body, you are creating a stressor. And that stressor is stimulating your mitochondria to repair. And that stimulation of repair is coming from the hydrogen peroxide. But if you create too much hydrogen peroxide, your post-workout soreness increases, your recovery time lengthens, He's like, God, I'm so sore today, I can't walk. Well, you're overdoing it. Your glutathione systems are inundated. Your hydrogen peroxide levels are skyrocketing. Riboflavin will help, as will electrolytes and glutathione, possibly even PQQ or SOD supplementation. Great. I did do, take some SOD during my competitive days for that exact reason. But for whatever reason, it's a, or a gluten derivative, is it not? It can be. Ours is not. So okay. we have an SOD at Seeking Health that is not gluten-derived. I would not bring in a supplement derived from gluten. I was getting it from Life Extension back then, and I was like, I'm not taking this shit. It's basically gluten. Yeah. SOD is weird. My wife will take SOD. She does not do well from SOD. She takes PQQ. Phenomenal for her. Glutathione. Not do well meaning what? Hit or miss. But PQQ is great. What does that mean, not doing well? She doesn't feel right? From SOD, she gets stomach issues from it. 
it's not derived from gluten for ours. So I don't know what the issue is. From glutathione, again, she gets stomach issues from that. We use a liposomal glutathione. She does well with our uh, liposomal glutathione plus. If she just takes regular glutathione, she doesn't. But liposomal glutathione plus, she does okay. And the reason being is it's complicated, but there's riboflavin, there's molybdenum, there's selenium, and there's PQQ in that glutathione. And so she has a higher need based upon her genetics that she needs that additional molybdenum, riboflavin, selenium, and PQQ when she is taking the glutathione. And when she does that, she does better. And so that's why I made the glutathione plus is because a number of people who do not do well from taking just regular glutathione, they feel poorly from it. I learned that if I gave them these set of nutrients in addition, especially in addition to electrolytes, you have to be hydrated. They did that. They tolerated glutathione way, way, way better. And so then I turned it into a supplement after I tested it enough. So we've got MTHFR, CMT, uh, MAO, and... DAO, diamine oxidase, very, very important for histamine. If you drink red wine or wine or champagne and you can't handle that at all, you get headaches, nosebleeds, irritable, insomnia, red flush face. If you can't read in cars, if you get seasick easily, you have headaches, you have horrible seasonal allergies, eczema, psoriasis, you can't eat strawberries or citrus, and you eat fish or leftover foods. You're like, God, you just hit every single nail on my head. <laughs> so many people are probably listening. You're like, oh my God, I was tuning out there for the past 40 minutes, but now I'm all focused. This DAO gene is very, very commonly dirty. And its job is to eliminate histamine from the microbiome because bacteria make histamine, especially bad ones. Blastocystis hominis. So if you order the stool test from doctor's data and you find that there's blastocystis hominis in there, I talked with Dr. David Quigg of of doctor's data. And I had blastocystis hominis and I had horrible histamine issues. I would touch a dust bunny under a couch and I'd basically have to take a full shower. I get red dots and it would just spread. It was awful. And one day after I dealt with the blastocystis hominis and I supported my microbiome, I started taking the probiotic histaminics, probiotic and vitamin C and, and all that. The main difference was the probiotic histaminics. And I was in a rental because we were remodeling our home. I pulled out the washer and dryer and I was thinking, because uh, it wasn't working, wasn't drying the clothes, I pulled it out and it was just full of dirt and grime and dust. And the pipe was full of prior tenants, garbage, and it wasn't evacuating the humid air to the outside. So I was like, oh God, I'm going to have to bathe after this. So I started touching all the dust bunnies and cleaning it all up. And, you know, I was expecting my nose to start running as it usually does and my hands to get all red bumped everywhere. And But I was just going to deal with it. It never happened. I was yeah. like, what the hell? I just kept cleaning and it still didn't happen. I was like, no way. And it was a probiotic. That was the main change. I could not believe. My respect for 10 billion bacteria just went from, oh yeah, we need probiotics to fully understanding what happens when you have the right ones. Mass difference. All right. We've been taking a lot of your time, so we'll wrap up. We got still four to cover, but if you just want to mention them quickly and we'll send people to your book. Yeah. PEMT, phosphatidylcholine, necessary for every single one of your cell membranes in your human body. So if your PEMT gene is dirty, you're not functioning. It's really, really important during pregnancy. You can lose your baby and you can also have gallbladder issues. If you've got gallbladder issues, this gene is a problem. And NOS3, cold hands and feet. If you've got cold hands and feet or your mouth breather, you're breathing through your mouth, not your nose all the time, or you have cardiovascular disease in your family, you've got a dirty NOS3. You've got to clean that up. That gene, as I talked about in the beginning of this interview, 
where you have this gene dirty, this gene dirty, and this gene dirty, and any of those will dirty a NOS3. So any genes and dirty genes, if any of those are dirty, your NOS3 is dirty. So you cannot clean your NOS3 without cleaning all the other six or seven of them. So again, it's a team. Mm-hmm. And NOS3 kills people, literally. If you've been struggling with miscarriages over and over again, it could be killing your baby too. So when women start supporting their MTHFR, NOS3, PEMPT, and COMT, and DAO, they have babies. Is that, is that the extent of EMT, DAO, MAO, COMT, MTHFR. And we talked about GST, GPX. So there should be seven. GST, GPX, no, we didn't. Yeah, so those are the glutathione genes. Oh, got it. Amazing. That was a incredible masterclass on DNA, on epigenetics. And I think there's certainly three, four, five, ten more layers. We could have gone deep oh, there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We'll have you back because I would actually really love to dive into understanding methylation of the gene and all of these other uh, expressions that happen at the gene level that really is indicative of methylation status of a cell. If we didn't get into that at all, that would be super interesting to have you explain sometime when we can have you back on. Yeah. And for the methylation status of the cell, I'll just quickly state that there's a lot of things that are at play with that. And the book Dirty Genes resolves a lot of those issues. I was actually looking at creating a genetic test that looks at the methylation of genes because a genetic test is looking at just at the static gene itself. It's looking at maybe the car out front mm-hmm. or the laptop on your desk, but you have no idea what's on the inside. You don't know how it's functioning. If you order a, what's called a CPG test, the methylation sites, you could actually tell if the gene is on or off. What do you do with that information? Right. The problem is... It just still doesn't matter if you do the a genetic test and you're looking at to see if the gene is on or off because you're still going to do the same stuff that you're doing in your Dirty Genes book. It doesn't matter. So I thought I was getting ahead of myself. Well, I'm sure at some point we'll have enough information to be able to take action on that information. We're just maybe not at that point yet for testing. Possibly. But the fundamentals are king. Dr. Ben Lynch. So grateful to have you here. And if you want to tell people where they can find you directly. So any of the supplements we talked about is available at seekinghealth.com. Dirty Genes is found everywhere, which is awesome. Uh, your bookstore, once they open up again, get them online, Barnes & Noble and Amazon. I do recommend the audiobook as well. The audio is fantastic. But if you get the audiobook, I do recommend you get it, the paperback or hardcover in addition to. But the audio is great because you hear things that you're going to be missing if you read it. Do you read it yourself? I've read that book. So many times I can't read it again. Did you read the audio? Is that you reading it? Oh, no, no, no. I hired a professional. So my publisher reached out to me and gave me six narrators to choose from. And then I could pick my favorite three. I put his name three times. So I said, there's no choice here. You're using him. I'm not picking anyone else. You did a beautiful job. And you can find me on Instagram and Facebook at Dr. Ben Lynch on Instagram and Dr. Benjamin Lynch on Facebook. And I highly suggest people go over and follow you because you do an amazing job with all of your data reviews and you've had amazing commentary around coronavirus and some other human issues that we're experiencing now during corona. And if people want to go check those out, I highly suggest it. Dr. Ben Lynch, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Ben. And that's a wrap, ladies and gents. Hope you loved my conversation with Dr. Ben Lynch. 
definitely a very, very bright man. If you don't already know, we're also offering these podcasts now on YouTube. So if you're someone who likes to watch videos on YouTube in the morning and actually see my funny facial expressions as I converse with these amazing, brilliant professionals, head over there and make fun of my expressions and my amazing haircut. Or just continue listening on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you do love the podcast, we would love a review because that's what drives this podcast. Subscribe, review, send it to at least one person you know and love. So this is one of those conversations where I think everyone needs to hear this stuff. Everyone needs to have at least this little bit of information as far as understanding that, hey, you can change your genetics. Hey, you can change the expression of these things. And if you do so, guess what? You can really make a difference on your life. You can really shift things, even though maybe you felt like your health wasn't going well, or maybe you were stressed, maybe you were anxious and didn't know some of these things. Well, guess what? We're empowering you now with the knowledge and ultimately the skill set to take action. I hope you guys enjoyed it. If you did, head over and follow Dr. Ben Lynch as well, because I know you would love it. Have a great day, guys. Live your greatest life in a body that you absolutely love. Thank you so much for tuning into Muscle Intelligence. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to share it with at least one person you know. Make sure you're subscribed so you never miss an episode. This podcast is for information purposes only. The statements and views on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Ben Pikulski and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements or advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest and products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.